right, well, welcome to our last um, Bible study for this year. After all, next, we're going to discontinue starting next week up through the new year, and uh, plan is we'll resume after uh, the new year, although we'll just play what, what we may or may not do it at the same time and day. I don't know. We'll just see what we do. But uh, that's the going plan is we'll stop coming after today and we'll start back up in the first Wednesday going plan after uh, New Year's Day. But uh, today let's finish up our topic where we're kind of looking very briefly at uh, this distinction between law and gospel and uh, how this is a fundamental distinction throughout the scriptures and understanding it on the one hand, helps you understand the scriptures a whole lot, as they are, but also helps you apply it a lot more ably to yourself uh, and to others, for that matter. And we talked about some of the reasons why this matters practically, but I'll just quick rehearse a couple of those. It matters first and foremost because this is a matter of your salvation and how you become a person who believes in Christ and trusts that you are going to stand in the judgment because of his life, death, and resurrection. After all, if you don't think that you're a sinner, you're not really going to expect that you need to stand on any work that Christ has done to save you. You need to hear God's condemnation so that your heart is tuned to be ready to actually receive and hold on to the salvation that Christ offers. Otherwise, you're just going to turn away from it and say to God on the last day something like, I think I'm good enough, God. <laughs> um, I don't need Jesus. Thank you. Let's see how I measure up. Won't do very well. Uh, so there's that obvious practical matter. Your eternal destiny is bound up in this whole thing. Uh, it also is very helpful for comforting people who are very distressed. I think I mentioned up in Minnesota, in my ministry in Minnesota, how there was this one gentleman who, lifelong solid Lutheran, you would... you. He could quote you the catechism off the top of his head. Uh, he was just a solid guy, but on his deathbed, he was convinced he was going to hell. Why? Well, because no matter how uh, many times you hear it, it's still very easy for the devil to throw one or two of your sins back in your face and say, do you really believe in God? I mean, look at what you did. You think God is going to be happy with you who knew so much, who was supposed to love God so much and still did this? It's very easy for us when we, to get back into this idea about the way we stand before God as being based primarily on our worthiness. And so for people who are distressed by their sins, whether on their deathbed or just in the routine day-to-day -day life, if you've wrestled with guilt, you know how crushing that can be. Um, this distinction is very helpful for seeing where the limits of the law are and helping giving comfort to people in that kind of distress. And of course, another third and kind of obvious one, it's just what the truth, how the, God's word actually talks. And it's very important to know the truth of God's word and to be formed by that truth so that you can live a life that actually reflects what God has created this world to be. So very big practical implications for getting this right. So how do we get it right? That's what we're going to mainly fo focus on today. Um, how do we rightly distinguish these two in the day-to-day, -day, either when we're dealing with it ourselves or when we're, help when we're approaching other people with this? And a, a good helpful thing is to remember the difference between the two. And uh, notice, we can, we can say the difference on paper 
pretty easily in our heads. I mentioned this before. Uh, I already got our first exams back from our confirmation kids where there's a big section of say, is this statement law, is this statement gospel? They have occasional foibles, but by and large, they all are able to do this pretty well. It's not hard to do it on paper. Um, but just remember the difference between the law and the gospel over here. I won't write them down because they're on your sheets and we already talked about these, but the law is all about telling you what you are expected to do. This is how God wants you to live your life, to behave, to think, and to feel. The gospel, on the other hand, tells us what God does for us and for our salvation. So they're talking about two different subjects. The law is about you and what you do. The gospel is about God and what he does for you. By the same token, because the law is all about what you're supposed to do, it also turns around on you and shows you whether you've done it or not. It's a mirror. shows you your sin, your failures, or your relative successes, I suppose you could say. But at the end of the day, if you dig deep enough, it will also always show you your failures. It shows you your sin and therefore God's wrath and condemnation of your, against your sin. Whereas the gospel shows you something entirely different, not your failure, not your sin, not your unworthiness, but Christ's worthiness, Christ's work to save you. The law, again, who is it meant to be preached to? It's to be preached to all people. On the one hand, because it applies to all people, this is how you are supposed to live. But it's especially meant to be preached to those who are secure in their sins and are unbothered by them so that they recognize their trouble and have their hearts prepared for the gospel. The gospel is primarily to be preached to sinners who recognize their sin and need to find the hope that the gospel gives. Okay? That's the difference we talked about last time. Any, any questions or thoughts you have about that before we dive into? Seems pretty straightforward, so how do we keep, what's the big deal of keeping it straight? down to the point where the law condemns you, the gospel saves you? You could, and some people have done that. There is only one really big problem with doing that. You can do it that way. That is what we would call the primary way of doing this. Uh, that's what preachers do very often. It's certainly the heart of the Christian faith. The law shows you your sin. The gospel shows you your Savior. There's, there's one minor but significant problem with that is the law does more than simply show you your sin. And uh, when you, we'll talk about this at de in detail in just a little bit, but when you do that, what you end up basically doing is making all God really has to say to you, the gospel that you're forgiven, you're acceptable, you're going to live forever. And you leave off virtually everything else that the scriptures say, which is quite a lot about what kind of life pleases God, about how you should comport yourself now that you've been saved, and all of these other things. While it sounds good um, and pastoral and helpful, and it's certainly true that that's the major point, it will inevitably lead you to places like, say, where the ELCA goes, which is the whole central message that has allowed them to go the way they go. We, can't, we don't even need to pay attention to the rest of the Bible as long as we're maintaining that the, law shows you, that the law shows your sin, that the gospel frees you from it. So now that the gospel has freed you, that was the whole point. We can ignore everything else because this is the point. And that's very much the official 
disposition and uh, comportment of the ELCA and the heart of all of the problems, if you're aware of any of those um, that they do. By the way, they've just recently inducted their, the, their first transgender bishop. So go gospel. <laughs> but that's the only clarification I would add to that. But again, we'll get into that. Anything else you want to talk about? But it's a good question that, like I said, we're going to get into more deeply here. All right. Then let's dive in. We need to know that difference, that basic difference. I mean, there's more you can say about the differences, but that's a good rough and ready. But we want to be able to properly apply that. That is to say, we want to apply the law to the people and the situations, including ourselves, when and where it's needed to be applied, when and where God actually is addressing us with the law. And we want to apply the gospel when and where God intends to address us with the gospel as laid out in the scriptures. And it's very, very easy to actually mess that up. And so we're going to kind of focus on the proper way to do it by focusing on some common improper ways of doing it. And uh, by the way, if you want to know on this number three on your worksheet, most of these I just pulled straight out of uh, a little book that's kind of a big deal in our church body. C.F.W. Walter wrote this thing called The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel, and he lays out about, oh, 20-some-odd statements about what the law is, what the gospel is, and how and when you do it wrongly. <laughs> so this is just kind of going with that, but I've, I've kind of dressed up the language to show, on the, to make it more understandable on the one hand, but on the other hand to show that these aren't just archaic, abstract uh, things that seminarians like to learn about. So there's big ways, let's talk about some of the big ways that people kind of don't do this well. And from that, hopefully learn how we could do it well. One of the big ways that happens, especially today, is by downplaying this, the law. Making it seem as if, for instance, certain kinds of sins aren't really that big of a deal to God. While other ones might be, but certain kinds of ones, you know, everybody does it. We understand. It happens. That's okay. Or as though um, God's law, therefore, is not quite so strict as it obviously is. I'll use a nice little um, example that happens in churches all over the place. How often is it that uh, church people like to tell stories about one another? Oh, nothing wrong with reporting news about each other, by the way. But sometimes raising it with a twinge about, boy, I wonder what that person is thinking. Trying to get across the idea that there's something wrong with this person. Basically, gossiping in one form or another. Have you ever met a church person who does that? Or ever heard this happening in churches? Why? And why do we do it? Well, we know why we do it. It's a lot of fun to do, frankly. It's enjoyable. We get some huge emotional benefits all kinds of ways from doing it, right? Now, what do we tell ourselves if we ever realize that's what we're doing? Well, everybody else does it. <laughs> well, they asked, so it's okay in this case. It's understandable. I mean, it's one of those little sins. It's not like, for instance, I'm a homosexual. <laughs> I'm only a gossip. As though... God's law isn't really condemning that sin of yours that severely. As though God doesn't insist you knock that off right now. And as though God doesn't say that kind of stuff is going to get you to hell. <laughs> 
because that's what the law actually says. And we downplay the law all the time. So that, by the way, those sins don't actually need forgiveness. They're just, you know, little weaknesses, little picadillos, little white lies, or all those little things that don't actually raise God's hackles all that much. He'll get over it, and so will you, and so will I. So it's all good. That's one of the big ways it happens. Not just with those kinds of sins, but you understand it. It's in that whole situation where when somebody comes to you with their burden, conscience burdens, and the way you try to help them work through it, cope with their guilt is by helping them see that what they did was understandable. It was excusable. It wasn't as big of a deal as they're building it up in their own head. Rather than saying something like, or helping them see, you're right, that was horrible. You need God's forgiveness, first of all, and then we'll try to do better. <laughs> so, one big way is we make the law not that big of a deal, which on the one hand means we don't really need the gospel all that much for that particular thing. It's a bad deal. Another way this happens, not just downplaying the law, but mixing the two up. Uh, that is to say, kind of, one way this happens more often is by putting the law into the gospel. Uh, something where you say, well, God loves you, he's, accept he's forgiven you, he's died for your sins, you are now acceptable in his sight um, if you do A, B, or C. That's a crass version of it where, yes, Jesus has come to forgive you all your sins provided you meet these particular conditions. And now what have I done? This is no longer a gospel about what God does for me. It's also a message about what therefore I must do for God. The gospel is presented as a new law. One of the ways this happens a lot, by the way, is in, we'll just go with the, uh, the biggest well-known one, Roman Catholicism has its whole system built on the idea that uh, you are saved by cooperating with the grace of God, and therefore you, you are justified by actually cultivating love in yourself, and that's the gospel. God will give you grace so that you can do what pleases him. Yes, he forgives your sins, but that alone isn't what saves you. What saves you is also your cooperation with the grace of God. We could go into more, more uh, common-day kinds of things, but this is the basic point. When you use the gospel in such a way that there are strings attached, you have to also be this kind of person. You have to do A, B, and C. Otherwise, Christ hasn't really died for you. Otherwise, so on and so forth. Make sense? Very easy to do. Uh, can you see why that is not really the gospel when you start mixing the two up a little bit? Because now it's just a slightly easier version of the law. God will help pick up the difference, um, but you still have to give it your best. And by the way, that's not going to leave anybody with a lot of comforts if they ever truly come to grasp their sins, because then the question will always open up in their mind, well, I may not have been as sincere in all of this as I, I thought. Have I actually fulfilled the condition? Am I repentant enough? Do I feel my faith deeply enough? Have I been loving enough to actually have my sins forgiven and Christ do all this for me? Not helpful. Another way that happens is simply by... Uh, Applying the wrong one to the wrong person in the wrong time and place. A bad application. Uh, so, for instance, when somebody is crushed 
by what they are they have done. Let's say uh, I don't know your your kid who's been in and out of jail all their life suddenly has this big realization come to Jesus moment where they are realizing they have been a horrible child, a horrible citizen. They just feel nothing but the weight of failure and uh, horrible moral evil on and their skin, and they come to you and say, Mom, Dad, I realize I've just been a horrible person. How, what, well, how could I ever keep on living? And you say, do better, work harder. You were bad, but get with the program, and maybe we can consider you a decent person again. Imagine saying that with respect to God, too. That uh, person says, man, I'm a horrible Christian. I, I realize that I have not kept these laws. I've, I've sinned against my uh, wife, my, my parents, my kids, all kinds of things. And the pastor's response is, well, now that you've seen that, do better. <laughs> and then you'll be a good person. <laughs> Something like that. How does that help? That might, for a time being, give them a 12-step program of something to help feel like they're lifting themselves off. They might even be able to improve their behavior, but it won't really help them lift off the burden of the guilt and unworthiness that they feel. The law cannot deliver you from its condemnation. You need the gospel. So, applying the law to people who are already crushed and already penitent is not the way to go. Those are people who need the gospel. By the same hand, this happens a lot more uh, uh, subtly, and I'll point out some of these. Um, For instance, when somebody who's troubled about their relationship to God is wondering how, whether they're a good Christian, whether God could possibly accept them, whether they're faithful you turn around and you point them to their own prayers, their own virtues, their own sense of piety to help try to comfort them. One of the most common ways this happens is pastors get questioned, well, how do I know I have faith, pastor? And the pastor says something like, well, the fact that you're worried about it shows you have faith. What have I just done? I said, well, if you're worried about your piety, let's go back and psychoanalyze whether you're actually pious. (laughs) Basically, Are you keeping up with the demands you think you're supposed to be meeting? And here's a reason I can point to that makes me feel like, yes, you are. But what if you happen to not agree with the reason I give you that, yes, this is an indication of your piety? I have a doubt. You're telling me that my doubt is an instance of my trust, is an evidence of my trust? Really? That's kind of weird on the one hand, but it throws it all back on me. What they need to be directed to is not their own faith, not to pray to God about this so that he can strengthen you, although that's not bad advice to pray to God. It's to say they're not going to derive ultimate comfort from that or any real lasting comfort. What they need is the promise of the gospel set before them. If somebody comes to you and says, I I don't know if I actually have a strong enough faith here, you don't point them back, well, try to have harder faith or look at what faith you do have. Isn't that nice? You point them to the thing that gives them faith. (laughs) Well, hear now the promise of the gospel. Even though you're weak of faith, Christ has still died for you. Christ has still shed his blood on the cross for you. You give them the thing that creates the faith. Not point them back to the faith as though it's some kind of muscle they need to work on. Make sense? And that's true not just of faith, but of love, of uh, every kind of form of piety. By the same token, that also goes back to, not just with faith, but like I said, also feeling sorry enough. 
Have you ever heard somebody say, well, you're, you need to feel a, something like you're not sorry enough for what you've done? Some version of it, maybe not quite like that, but the whole point is you need to feel a certain amount of sorrow before I'm going to be willing to forgive you. And if you can show me that you're sorrowful enough, then I'll forgive you. We probably all do that once in a while, or at least several of us have probably fallen into that before. But uh, when we act like that's how God operates, that's a serious problem. God does not require you to cultivate a certain amount of sorrow over your sins before the offer of the gospel is good. While it is important to have sorrow for your sins, as we say, contrition, sorrow over your sins, uh, guilt, lamentation, is a necessary preparation. We don't mean it in the sense that this is the virtue you must have in order to be worthy of this. What we mean is that's a helpful thing to have so that, you're meant, that you'll actually have a heart that's willing to hear it. It's not that virtue, that's contrition earns the gospel or makes you worthy of finally hearing forgiveness. It's that contrition is just the state you'll probably need to be in if you're actually going to believe what Jesus says to you. The gospel is still true whether you're extremely sorry for your sins or just a little sorry for your sins. Um, does that make sense? Don't point them back to feel really bad or how sorry do you feel. Clearly, you must have faith. Point them to the gospel. By the same token, uh, urging a person when they're, when they're in that kind of situation of having a hurt conscience, you urge them to believe more. Just believe. Just trust. Cultivate it in yourself, basically. Have you ever tried to force yourself to love somebody? It doesn't work so well. <laughs> I, I, I can't force, for instance, an attraction to somebody that isn't there. I can't just sit on my couch and go, okay, mm, oh, I love her so much. <laughs> It, it just doesn't. You, you love somebody in a very, as much as we want to, I, I don't love the idea of how much we push effort on falling in love or put emphasis on that into our uh, current marital relationships. There is truth to the fact that you just, it comes on you. It's not something you create within you. Faith is very much the same way. I don't sit there and force myself into believing harder. I can force myself to do practices that might be helpful to believing more, but I can't just directly believe more. What I need, again, is the gospel and the promises of God that strengthen my faith. And then a last token, or a last way of doing this, uh, another way, I should say, of misapplying these two to the wrong people, is um, applying the gospel to people who are manifestly continuing in sin. That is to say, acting as though a person has a good, solid faith, even when they are willfully, manifestly, and deliberately going against the commands and ignoring the promises of God. That is to say, while you don't want to apply the gospel where the law is actually the thing to be applied. When a person is willfully continuing in something that is manifestly forbidden in Scripture, what are they doing except breaking the third commandment and whatever other commandment God has given about despising the word of God, despising this relationship, despising this obligation, and so on? Um, they are not the people who need to hear, and God is so happy with you, 
come and receive the blessings of the gifts of Christ because they are not in a position to hear it. Again, they're in the same position as the rank unbelievers, that is to say, those who don't recognize that they even need a Savior, or who, just as bad, think that the Savior came primarily to serve them to allow them to continue to pursue passions that manifestly oppose God. The gospel is the good news that God forgives rebels and ends the rebellion, not comes and allows the rebels to continue in the rebellion. And so again, when people need to hear the law, even formerly uh, converted Christians, we don't act as though they only need the gospel now that they call themselves Christians. Sometimes they need to hear the law. Make sense? All right. Uh, another one this happens is when we uh, misidentify faith. That is to say, of course, people are going to be because they have faith, and they recognize that faith is what receives the gospel, they're going to assume that this is an important thing. But there's various ways we can talk about the word of God and apply the word of God that uh, changes faith in such a way that it doesn't hold on, that it's not pointed to hold on to the gospel, but to hold on to something else. Does that make sense? We, we can present the word of God in such a way that faith is not trying to be fed by the gospel, but is being turned away to something else. Now, what I mean, I'll just give you a couple of uh, reasons for this. For one re way this happens is by simply asserting that uh, faith is basically the same thing as knowledge. I learned in confirmation class that God is triune, that Christ was incarnate, that he died for my sins, and now, if I uh, were asked on a true-false test about those, I will put true every time. And I will agree in my head, yes, that is true. But, um, as though, therefore, just because I have those propositions floating around up there, and I agree in an abstract way, yes, that's correct, that's the same thing as faith. But that is not the same thing as faith. While knowledge is absolutely fundamental to the Christian uh, to Christianity, and it's good to grow in knowledge for the sake of strengthening our faith. Faith is, first of all, actual confidence and trust. It is not simply knowledge. Can you give me an example of the difference between knowledge and trust? I'll break out one that I, I think I've used before, but I, I love to use with my uh, confirmation kids. Minnesota, it's cold up there. It is bitterly cold up there. It stays well below zero for most of the winter. And there's a lot of lakes, 10,000 of them according to the license plate, and probably more than that. Those, thing, those lakes, you know what happens when they get that cold for that long? They don't just freeze over. They freeze. <laughs> um, the ice gets thicker and thicker and thicker as the winter goes on. Now, I know how physics work. I have knowledge. <laughs> about what the truth of these lakes is in the middle of winter. I know, theoretically, I can walk out onto that lake, I can cut a hole in that ice, I can go fishing, I could drive my van out on the lake, I could light a fire on that lake, and will be perfectly fine. You know what I will never do in Minnesota and never did do in Minnesota? Any of the above. <laughs> and you know why? <laughs> because I didn't actually have confidence that the truth that I agreed to would hold up under scrutiny. I didn't 
act like it was true because I didn't have confidence in the ice. Now, if somebody would have asked me all of these things about, well, you know, mathematically speaking, when the water is so thick, uh, it can support so much weight, and you are nowhere near that amount of weight. It cannot fail. I will say, I agree. I am not doubting the science. Go out on the lake. Not a chance. <laughs> Knowledge will not save you. Christ saves you, and you receive that not by knowing as items of knowledge, but by embracing it with confidence. Make sense? And when we uh, talk about faith and sometimes act as though faith is merely a matter of knowledge, we're directing people to the wrong thing, or to place, to uh, assume the wrong thing, as though it's not about God coming to you and embracing you and being gripped by that embrace, but it's more about, again, my act of learning certain facts and assenting to them. And Christ basically emphasized that when he talked about bringing little children before me to have a faith in a little child. Obviously, the child has little to no knowledge of that. Well, I've made it a, a practice from now on that I'm not baptizing a kid who can't recite the Athanasian Creed for me. Because... I'm in trouble. Or at least say true when I recite it to them. <laughs> No, obviously, you're right. Um, little kids kind of are the proof in the pudding here. They can only have a limited knowledge of God. Let's, and that's another great instance. How much did your infant children know about you? Probably nothing. Were they able to be confident in you and trust you? They trusted you, too. Yeah, because you take care of them. Right. And uh, the second mommy comes around when Samuel's, well, not these days, he's just in a phase. But it used to be the case that uh, whenever mommy came around, he would stop crying as soon as she held him. If somebody else held him, he didn't know anything about that person, probably not a lot more about that person than mommy. <laughs> he trusted mommy profoundly because mommy had come to him and showed her trustworthiness. Same kind of thing with the gospel. It's not a set of propositions, although it includes a lot of propositions. It is primarily an act of God coming down and embracing you with his love and his grace. And even a child can have that faith. Contra the Baptists who think that it's a moral decision based on knowledge. Um, and therefore only adults could have it. So is that clear, that we don't want to apply this in such a way that we actually lead faith away from the promise, but rather present the gospel as though it is merely knowledge, and that's what people need to get on board of learning. By the same token, you also don't want to, uh, we also know, of course, from the scripture, that faith produces fruits, right? We've talked a lot about that in this class. It produces good works, and it produces, on the other hand, um, a desire to mortify and put to death old passions, old sins, and those kinds of things. But that does not, while fruits can be a helpful uh, thing to preach the law about, and you certainly do want to preach the law based around fruits for two reasons. One, to inform people about the kinds of things that God desires so that as they want to do good works, they'll wonder, 
Well, what do I do? Oh, the law shows me what I'm supposed to do. So the law is good to, pr- to uh, preach to the faithful for helping them cultivate the kinds of life that's pleasing to God because they want to, because faith leads them to want to. Um, and by the same token, the law should be uh, used to condemn and convict ongoing sins in the life, even of believers. And therefore, in a certain sense, uh, what you don't want, and again, because you don't want to preach the gospel to er- people and situations where the law is required. So because I need to condemn this sin in a person, I don't go to that person and only preach the gospel. I preach the law to convict and condemn. Nevertheless, the fruits should not be presented in such a way as they are um, proof of faith or a lack of faith. Does that make sense? I don't want to say, Rhonda, you've just really been a helpful person lately. You show all that charity and uh, great good works for the congregation. You're so involved. You must be a believer. And I know that. And you should know that you have a strong faith because you're such doing so well. Or by the same token, going to uh, Sam, or I'll, I picked on Sam last time. <laughs> going to Sue and saying, Sue, <laughs> Because you have fallen into this sin, you know for sure and for certain that you do not have faith and you are lost. Do you think people who have done something way back when in their life and they, you know, I mean, they're going to remember it. Mm-hmm. Do they still feel guilty that that's not been forgiven? It does happen. I can, I can say, again, from the experience with that one gentleman I mentioned up in Minnesota, it happens. It's easy for you to look at the, and this is one of Satan's favorite tacks, by the way, helping you confuse your law and your gospel by uh, making you think that Christ's forgiveness and therefore your faith which receives it is based around the fruits which faith is supposed to produce. And therefore, Satan is very easy to, again, years later, maybe out of the clear blue sky, maybe he's been plaguing you with this over the year, for years and decades, saying, but you know, you did do that. And clearly, Christians don't do that. And therefore, you are not a Christian. Therefore, you are not saved. And he turns the the gospel back into a law, not necessarily saying Christ didn't die for you and that's a free gift, but to say, but you were supposed to produce these fruits, and since you didn't, you know that this doesn't apply to you. The gospel no longer applies to somebody like you who dropped the ball. Fruits can be helpful indicators of the health of our faith. And that is to say, they're helpful for showing um, whether we have some repentance to be doing still. They're helpful for knowing whether we need the law preached to us in what way, right? But they are not a proof, sure and certain, of this is where your faith lies, this is where your relationship to God lies. And we don't want to present the law and the gospel as though um, these are are such direct manifestations of saving faith that you can reliably read back to say the lack of of attending church so often means you're not a Christian. The lack of, um, I don't know, whatever, fill in the blank, means you're not a Christian. Or by the same token, the presence of you being in church every single week means you are certainly a Christian. The presence of fill-in-the-blank means you are certainly a Christian. That is turning again away from the gospel and back onto 
your works, whether good or bad, as a determination for whether you actually believe, and therefore a determination of whether you can count yourself among the saved, which implies that uh, faith, again, is something you can control and all kinds of horrible things. Um, any thoughts, questions so far? I was just thinking when you were talking about that, that it just made me think about a lot of funerals, even in churches that claim to be Christian, they have these eulogies of these persons that tell how good these people are. Right. Yeah, eulogies are a, an excellent example of that and an excellent example of why Lutherans traditionally shy away from them. Because, by the way, there's nothing wrong with remembering the departed and sharing stories about what a great citizen, a good, helpful family member, just a loving husband, father, wife, mother, whatever they happen to be. Nothing wrong with that. Of course, when you do it, a, in the worship service, um, and B, often with the intent of verifying, see, such a good person, you know they're up in heaven with God right now. Why? Because they were a good person. And that's not necessarily even saying the fruits manifest of faith. That's just saying straight up, the law got them there. <laughs> we never want to give an impression in a funeral that the law has helped them get to heaven. And so we don't do eulogies. But yeah, that's an excellent example of that kind of thing. Do we really know what defines good works? I mean, you know, what might be good works for you, for I, you know, in the eyes of God or Christ? I mean, you know, maybe offering up a silent prayer to help someone could, could be a good work. But yeah. Right, right. No, and that's, that's a fair question. I will say there is a certain amount of definiteness you can say in knowing what good works are because do have a law where God says, these are the good and pleasing things. Not necessarily um, check mark item A, B, C, like you have to pray at 8 a.m. this kind of prayer, you have to help this such and such person this time. We're not saying it's specific, but there's broad outlines of this is the kind of thing that God commands. So you know this is the kind of thing that pleases God. And so you can, on a certain objective state, let's say, say externally, those things, by and large, are the kinds of things that please God, provided they're coming from, you know, a good, faithful heart. Um, and you can say definitively, those are kinds of things that are bad. For instance, it's easy to say it's a good work for, the, for a father to make sure that his kid is learning about Jesus. That is a good work, objectively speaking. Conversely, it's a bad work, objectively speaking, for a father to take no care for that kind of thing. But, as you point out, not all good works are out there for us to see, so to speak. Um, saying a silent prayer, attitudes in your hearts are good works. Um, just the general love that God calls us to, this virtue of actually valuing others more than yourself and giving them yourself for their sake, there's nothing. There's no necessary obvious point you can say. There's the re, there's the good work that that produced. You might not be able to see it. So in that sense, we don't know whether a person has good works or not, all the way across the board, so to speak. You'll obviously be able to say some of those works that he's doing outside are almost certainly bad works, and you can certainly say that some of those works that he's doing on the outside 
have the form of good works. Makes sense? That is, it, it broadly conforms to the demands of the law. But you can never say anything about what's actually going on in their heart through those good works. And you can never really say um, that the lack of what you think they should be doing means that they lack actual good works. Because like you said, they might be offering up a silent prayer. And that is a good thing to do. And all kinds of other things you could point out. And that makes me think of the Bible verse where it says, well, Lord, when did we see you, or when did we visit the sick or visit the prisoners and stuff? And he said, whenever you did this to one of mine. Right. Whenever you did this to the least of these, yeah. my brothers, you did to me. Yeah. Right. They, they were unaware of their own good works. So that we can't be aware of all of our works. That we no. Do, so. Just as we're not probably, we're never going to be aware of all of the sins that we commit. There's just no possible way, as the scriptures say, who can discern his errors. So likewise, we probably aren't even aware of all the good works we do. In fact, um, a hyper-awareness of them is actually something that Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, do not let your left, right hand know what your left hand is doing. Why? Well, because almost certainly you're going to lose your good works to boost your ego and turn it into a bad work, where it's now a point of pride rather than simply something that proceeds solely out of the love of God and other people. Um... So good works can easily be turned into a problem for us, to our faith. So again, good works are also not a necessarily proof positive that you are a Christian. So then you might think, well, how do I know I'm a Christian? To which I'll direct you to, don't worry about that so much. Know this, Christ has died on the cross for your sins, baptized you, and made you his child. By the same token, and here's another important one, because you know that every once in a while I like to, un, un, this is not rare among LCMS pastors, I like to bring up little shots across the bow of Baptists, Catholics, and all these other bodies as saying, they're not preaching the troll truth of God's word. And I stand by that. They are not preaching the truth of God's word. And some of the errors that they preach, that they teach, that they cultivate among the people, um, again, bad knowledge is bad for faith. This is just a fact. Um, I would certainly not have been confident in that lake if I were under the false belief that the ice could not have supported my weight, right? So while true knowledge did not guarantee my faith, false knowledge certainly would have warred against it, right? The same is true with these other church bodies um, where they don't, where they have more or less significant errors in their doctrine, that is, in what they hold out as the gospel, where they're not pointing people entirely to Christ and the ways Christ saves them and what he does, but often mix in the law on the one hand, deny aspects of the gospel, all kinds of things like that. That is not to say that the people who hold to, all, to those beliefs are necessarily faithless. That is to say, it's, we do not, it would be a, a denial of the law and the gospel to say that a deficiency in the knowledge necessarily results in a lack of saving faith. So there are good, solid Christians. That is to say, people who genuinely hold to the gospel in the Baptist church. 
down in Redbrush Christian Church, there are people who genuinely hold to it. Maybe even their ministers genuinely hold to it, although they're committing a very grievous sin by preaching bad knowledge. Nevertheless, in the Catholic Church, in the Baptist Church, and so on, despite those breakdowns in knowledge, we cannot assert, therefore, they are lost forever. I say this because it wasn't that long ago where just about every church body, and sometimes LCMS pastors would fall into this too, of asserting, um, we are the only church with the truth, which I do believe is true, we're the, we're the ones with the purest doctrine. Therefore, we are the only church with the saved. Have you ever heard something like that, either from Lutherans or other church bodies? If, it, if you hear that, it is actually a misapplication of law and gospel, because on the one hand, it uh, turns faith in the gospel into, basically, a work of perfect knowledge. So that if you have an error in knowledge, obviously you can't have confidence in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's apply this back to the relationship between parents and babies again. I promise you, Samuel has all kinds of false ideas about what kind of dad I am. <laughs> he has some very defective knowledge about me <laughs> and my will for him. Does that mean he has no confidence in me? No. <laughs> it means he's, he's certainly got to get those kinks worked out. And as a parent, I certainly want to work those kinks out, right? But that doesn't undermine the fact that he still has the kind of trust that a child appropriately has for his father. By the same token, there are certainly kinks in the knowledge base of all of us, yes, um, but certainly kinks not just in the knowledge, but also especially the teaching of a lot of these other church groups. Things that you can easily point to the scriptures and say, you're just flat out wrong about that. And this is actually wars against confidence and trust. When you say things like baptism doesn't do you any, it's your confession to God that shows your devotion to him and deny that Christ and the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is actually doing what the Bible says about giving you the Holy Spirit, forgiving your sins, clothing you with Christ, saving you. Um, just to quote little snippets of various verses across the board. You're obviously turning people away from the acts that Christ reaches out to save them and misrepresenting those as their own work to try to show their devotion to God. It literally is turning the gospel into a law. And that's bad for faith, to say the least. But despite that horrible teaching, which needs to be opposed and corrected, despite that a breakdown in knowledge that that teaching creates, which no doubt needs to be corrected, does that mean that they therefore lack confidence that Christ alone, through his death on the cross, has saved them? No. No. We don't want to downplay it's a problem, but we don't want to confuse our law and gospel either as we deal with the problem. It would be like we plugged in heaven into our GPS all these different churches have different GPS or, you know, systems, so their roads may be rough and rocky, and a lot of them may fall by the way, but, you know, some of them can reach heaven. Yeah, exactly. Don't take the right path. <laughs> right, right. No, they, as long as they're holding to the, the compass of Jesus, <laughs> they will ultimately arrive at the proper destination. Now, again, we don't want to diminish the fact that 
that kind of teaching, just like bad knowledge about the ice led me not to walk onto the ice, it can and does directly result in a lot of people learn, trusting in themselves, losing their confidence in Christ. And so it is a pernicious and destructive error. Nevertheless, we don't go so far as to say there can't be any Christians there. No, there can be. There are, almost certainly, because Christ is still held out as the one who brings them to faith and to self-forgiveness. Of course, these days, that, that used to be something you needed to emphasize, and probably with the older crowd, it's still something worth emphasizing um, heavily. These days, it's almost the exact opposite of a view that doesn't really matter where I go to church. Or, I mean, we all, we're all on the same team here, right? We all believe in Jesus. And uh, there's this false understanding that uh, bad knowledge has no correlation to our faith whatsoever. That's a problem. <laughs> All right, one last way that uh, Walther puts this, uh, that's always also useful, is mixing up the order that these two are supposed to have. That is, you go to somebody who's uh, a rank unbeliever or uh, completely given to their sins and uh, just willfully uh, going against Christ or just doesn't even care, frankly, and you give them the gospel first, and then move on to the law. That is to say, I'll preach Christ at you and how much he does to love you, forgive you, and save you, um, so that that will presumably bring you to faith, and then we can start talking about the law and how you're supposed to behave. Just love on them until they become with Christ, until they become a Christian, and then get serious about saying, now this is what you need to live like. What do you see with some problems with that ordering? They wouldn't have any reason to be repentant. They feel they're already saved. Right, on the one hand, well, great. <laughs> okay, why are you talking to me, honestly? I just go to, like, bringing up your kids. When they do something they shouldn't do, you don't go to them and just love on them and hope that they'll change. you got to tell them what they did wrong. And then, you know. Right. It's what word actually needs to be said to the person in this situation. Um, the person who needs correction does not need to be told. Um, it's just not even helpful to tell them, I so much love you and accept you, and everything will be just good. There might be times and places where there's some background law already operating where you can get away with that as a parent, right? And no doubt that's true. And no doubt there's times with other preachers or we're dealing with other Christians who no doubt there's already enough background law operating in some way or another where you can get away with preaching the gospel at them before talking about how Christ would like us to uh, live our better lives. But by and large, to the, that is not the appropriate mode to take. They need to hear, first of all, that they are in the wrong how God feels about them being in the wrong, so that they are prepared to recognize they need Christ. Not, by the way, the gospel, sh I should also mention, and this is the other reason this is bad, the gospel is not primarily a means to make you into a better person. That is not the goal, the primary goal of the gospel, to make you capable of fulfilling the law. Uh, that is to say, we might... 
approach people, the idea is I want them to become a Christian and love on, and hear on, lo, fall in love with Christ so that I can finally start getting them to be a good person. The gospel is not the tool to fulfill the law. Does that make sense? The gospel is simply the good news that Jesus has come and saved you. It will result in you wanting to do the law. And no doubt there is a place for preaching the law to inform those people, but this is not a means to an end. If there is a means to an end, it is exactly the other way around. The law is the means to the gospel, not vice versa. Because if you make it this way, the gospel is all about fulfilling the law, well, you've made this really the main point. You being a certain kind of person, and not God being a certain kind of God. We'll wrap that up there. We, I was hoping we'd have time to talk a little bit about this, how this might look on the ground. But I hope you can just kind of intuit, since we didn't get time to do this, how this applies in so many aspects of our relationships with other people and in our habits of self-talk, you might say, when we're dealing with ourselves um, by virtue of the Word of God or thinking through our own relationship to God. We are so easily drawn into a lot of these kinds of things. Uh, my, own, uh, my own temptation that I struggle with the most is probably um, this one right here, using my own fruits as a good evidence of whether I'm a good Christian or not. It's easy for me to fall into the habit at the end of a week and think, I did a pretty good job this week. I'm glad I, I have a good, strong faith in Christ. I'm feeling like I have a weak faith if I didn't. Uh, we had a, on that score, a, the president of the uh, Minnesota North District said some, some very wise words uh, to one of our pastor's conferences. He said, the one thing I cannot deal with is 10 good days in a row. Because if I have 10 good days in a row, I start to feel like I'm doing, I am pretty good. <laughs> I've got this. I'm competent. I'm capable. And I must have a flourishing faith. <laughs> 10 good days in a row is all it takes for me to lose confidence in the gospel. <laughs> Remarkable how true that has proven in my own life. Anyway, let's bring this uh, topic to a close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.